this is Marnie with Maxim and Marnie. We're back with another episode and I feel so grateful to be interviewing these and I've been getting such kind and generous feedback um, from our church community for listening. So thanks for all of you um, people that tune in to hear our stories. Maxim is a synonym for truth um, and so the goal here is to have our friends that we are in community with share their stories. So today I'm very excited to have one of the smartest people Pastor Ryan says he knows. True story. Um, Dr. Doctor, PhD, Allison Escalante. Welcome. Yay. Actually, I'm an MD pediatrician. What's the difference? A PhD is a doctor of philosophy. So that's going to be like your scientists or your psychologists. A pediatrician MD is a medical doctor. So the one you take your kids to for strep throat and baby checks yeah, and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's already yeah. the doctors, smartest person I know. But both doctors... But the letters are different. The letters are different, yes. And PhDs can't prescribe medicine, whereas I have the power. PhDs. But PhD, what's a psychiatrist? That's an MD doctor. That's oh, a medical that's an doctor. MD. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. why they can prescribe the medicine. Exactly. Okay. Um, so, Allison, I don't know you. Welcome, welcome. Um, where are you from? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in New Jersey, and I spent my childhood talking loudly and climbing trees. Uh, And can you see New York City from where you were in New Jersey? No. I actually grew up, um, like my childhood was in Princeton, right across from the university. And then I moved out to Hackettstown, which is where there's trees and farms and mountains. And I could smell chocolate in my backyard because I grew up near the M&M factory. Oh. Oh, how fabulous. So really rural. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's considered a suburb, but it's like an hour and a half from New York City and um, just a beautiful country. I mean, we had bears in the backyard. Oh, wow. Um, It's funny because I think when you grow up more urban, you're afraid of like foxes attacking you or bears attacking you. (laughs) And then when you grow up there, you're afraid of the city life and all of that, right? So that's interesting. I definitely found the city initially overwhelming, but Mm -hmm. I used to go in a lot and you know, I really enjoyed the year I lived in downtown Chicago. That was a lot of fun. Wait, so let's back up. So okay. who did you grow up with? Who did you, um, who were your siblings? Um, so I had two brothers. They were younger. And um, I grew up in a neighborhood full of boys. So I spent time, like, playing army and catching guppies in the stream nearby and getting messy and getting a lot of skinned knees. So firstborn, really? I was the firstborn, And yes. are you typical... I feel like you are with your success in like school. I am um, absolutely a driven firstborn who always wanted to do what the teacher said and tried to follow the rules and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So school was easy from the get go. I was good at school. You yeah. were good at school. Yeah. How about socially? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think I, you know, when I moved up to my second town. Um, maybe nerdiness wasn't so popular. Um, And that's what you would have painted your picture of of yourself. I didn't know I was a nerd until people explained that to me. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have glasses? I did have glasses. Why are you associating nerds with glasses? Because I feel like that's the stereotype. That's the Halloween costume, right? That's right. So how old were you when you showed up in that new town? Sixth grade. Yeah, so... Yeah, so mm-hmm. that is a real pivotal time. It really is, So you, is, yeah. on the outside, felt um, pretty. You felt welcomed. No, how did you feel? Oh, my gosh. I felt awkward and nervous. And, uh, you know, I'd grown up in a university town, right? And then yeah. I moved and I was So using- that was super valued. 
Because, yeah, so we, yes. we, we valued big words and stuff like that. I mean, in fourth grade, the bullies picked on your posture. I'm not even kidding. And then I moved up to a town where I got picked on for good posture and for right. using big words. <laughs> and my culture. mom liked Land's End, so I wore, like, turtlenecks. Sure you did. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I one of my friends, oh, this was so funny. In the end of sixth grade, one of my friends took me to her house to teach me how to do my bangs sticking yep, up. Yep, yep, yep. You know, and, and use more hairspray and stuff. Yeah. What year were you born? Uh, 1977. Oh, my gosh, 76 myself, Bicentennial Baby. So we're right in the thick of it. Yeah. yeah so turtlenecks were phasing out mm-hmm. uh, in junior high. Yeah, so I feel your pain. They came back in the end of high school. Sure did. they were really out Sure did. High. We yeah. should bring back turtlenecks. So <laughs> I like bold. them. Did mm-hmm. your self-esteem at that point come from still being smart in school? Like when you felt bad about yourself on the outside or not fitting in with the group? Were you like, yeah, but look at me with my A+. No, I basically struggled in pretty much every area because I had what's called imposter syndrome. Which okay, is tell where, us about that. Well, I just wrote um, a very popular article about that for Psychology Today, actually. So that must be really hitting a nerve with people because um, imposter syndrome is when you're successful. And this can affect kids. It can affect adults. You're successful, but you don't really believe it. You think you're a fraud. And you think that if yes. people just saw that this happened because you were lucky or because of a, you know, maybe I'm not really smart, but I just worked really hard or maybe like I don't have anything useful to say, but I networked effectively. So it was really just luck. It's not me. And so these are people who can't believe their own success and they just walk around feeling like if people really looked at me, they'd know I'm a big fake. Have you ever heard, I think I might have said this before on this podcast, so forgive me if I have, but Kenny Rogers was on David Letterman once years ago, and he goes, we're all three people. And at first I wanted to dismiss it as, oh, he's just this silly celebrity. But he said, I might mess this up. We are who we think we are. We are who you think we are. And we are who we truly, truly are. And his story was that when those three are the closest related like how authentic and genuine you are. And his circle of telling this conversation was how Dolly Parton really is who you think she is. She really is who you are. (laughs) And how genuinely she lives within that and is aware of herself. Is that part of this imposter syndrome where like I am not aware of what my actual own identity is in the world? And so I'm maybe thinking of myself as this insecure person from junior high and I'm not aware of where I came to and now I have this success? Or no, different things. I think it's mainly originated in the parent-child relationship um, where a lot of times well-meaning parents um, can send messages to their kids that can set this up. And it's also really the message our wider culture is giving us right now, so it's really affecting everybody. But it's basically the idea that the standards are so high, I can never measure up. And um, so one way that parents can do this is the obvious one, which is being really critical and only focusing on what the child does wrong or um, that kind of that attitude of like, you don't, you're not good till you're good, so I'm just going to point out where you need to improve. And that's sort of an old school parenting style, right? But another way that parents can do this is, was really, um, became very popular during the self-esteem movement, if you remember that. And it's the idea of praising your kids to a level that's unrealistic. So like general praise. So like you're the most smart, you're the most beautiful kid, you're the best kid at math in your whole class in school, things like that without 
approaching the specifics. And so what kids get from that is a feeling that they're not seen, a feeling that their parents expect the world of them, and they can never measure up. And then what happens is they confess later to their therapist that they don't want their parents to know they got a B in their AP math class, which is, of course, a very challenging class, so a B would be a success. But they don't want their parents to know that because they were supposed to get an A. And they're so afraid they've let their parents down. There is a way to prevent it. Um, and uh, we can give messages to our kids that build genuine confidence. Um, and those involve more specific praise, where the kid really feels seen and where what's praised is not traits like smartness or beautifulness or being the best dancer, um, but um, effort. So like, hey, buddy, I noticed you worked really hard on that math homework today. You really put in that effort, and I respect that. Let's look this over. OK, good. You got these right. I see this one you got wrong. Remember, mistakes are how we learn. And I know that you can look at this challenge and figure it out. Let's see what we can do here. It's a totally different approach, and it helps the kids feel seen and like they matter. And then what they value about themselves is stuff like hard work. So that that really helps. It's very hard to convince someone that they're a big fraud if they're convinced that mistakes are how they get better at stuff. Right. Yeah. I've been guilty of this. <laughs> so I am a really loud cheerleader in my spirit animal. And when my Ellie, my middle one, was like three and a half, four, I might have made an extraordinary point of celebrating her cartwheel in our living room. Was it a great cartwheel? I don't know. But I made it seem like she had climbed Mount Everest. Then we went to gymnastics, and she came out of gymnastics. And I was like, oh, how was gymnastics? Obviously, I'd sat there the whole time because it was an hour, and she was like three and a half, four. And she came out, and she was so defeated and so sad looking. And I go, what happened? And she was like, I did my car wheel. And what did she say? Coach Stacy, you know what she gave me? She said, good, good job. And that's all she gave me. And I remember being like, oh, crap. Like, you know what? That's actually really nice. And I've ruined you. <laughs> like, I've totally ruined you. But I think that's a really excellent way to look at it. That instead of saying, look at the skill you just mastered. Here's your gold medal from I the Olympics. I should have celebrated. Oh, Look at how hard you work to do that. You're so strong to try so hard, right? Like, that's what you're saying? That's right, because then it leaves room to be less than perfect. Yes. Now, I'm not saying that parents shouldn't say you're the most beautiful boy in the world to their sons, which I say that stuff. I mean, you know, um, I tell them you're the heart of my hearts. And it's very hard for me not to just effusively tell them how amazing I think they are. But I also... And especially when it's something they care about, we'll use that kind of language. And it helps because my kids, unfortunately, are picking up that desire to do a great job the first time from me. I don't know if it's their genetic personality or if they just like pick it right up from me. So they can be very hard on themselves. And then I'm trying to send them the message, you know what? It, it doesn't matter if you get it wrong. What matters is that you keep trying. You know, yeah. and, and you can recover from that. And that's the last point, Marnie. You haven't ruined your daughter. 
Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, you can change the messaging. And if she's old enough, you can sit down and say, you know, I learned something really interesting today. This is how I'm thinking about how we do things like cartwheels. And this is what I learned. And this is how I'm going to talk about it going forward, because I realize that um, I want you to learn that, too. Right. Yeah. Grit and resilience over the success of it. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I totally have to share something. We, uh, Mandy's teacher friends, they they have this book where it's one question every day for three years, and uh, you get to answer it, and then your spouse gets to answer it. Oh, that. and and it's it's pretty intense because you have to commit yourselves to doing it. And so um, it was introduced to us by Tim and Lori because they got in a huge argument. And so they had, Tim bought like 500 copies and like he hands it to everybody now. But one of the questions, the first questions were like, um, describe your spouse in one word. And Tim wrote, good. And we're like, oh, man, like you're in the doghouse. And he goes, no, 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 man. And he's he's a really smart engineer. He goes, you can't be great at everything. I don't want her to be bad at everything. Just be good. And and that was his way of like just saying like I don't expect perfection out of you. And I thought that was so so cool. As soon as you hear it, yeah, the definite like, the connotation yeah, isn't awesome, but defining approach. it is yeah. beautiful. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then I had a crappy answer, whatever I had. So. <laughs> You gotta give us the name of this book. I, I have no clue. I, I actually want to turn it into an app because I think it'd be way better as an app to get yes, texted every day. Yes, the I book, love that the book, idea. I want to see what she writes, and what would be great is like if both of us got a text message at nine yeah. in the morning yeah. with the question simmer and, on it, and then let's say Marnie, you answer, but Brett doesn't answer yet, and it's noon. He gets another text saying Marnie answered at this time. Um, <laughs> you, you need you, you need care to do about it. Your but then at the end of the three years, they should print all of your answers. Like I, I, I want to come up with that app. That I like this if idea. If we have any like engineers that knows Are how listening. to do that, yeah, yeah that computer cool. engineers, I want to create this. I'll come up with questions. Um, back to the to podcast. Seg- yeah, back to Miss Allison, Dr. Allison. Um, I was thinking I answered should when I answered you did. that question. I heard, that. I heard that. I did. And yeah. I, Pastor Ryan had sent me a link of Dr. Allison Escalante speaking about shoulds. So could you give us a little um, brief uh, description on that for us? Well, first off, the U.S. now leads the world in anxiety levels. We're in the middle of an anxiety epidemic, and it's getting worse every year, and it's affecting no one more than parents and kids. When parents are anxious, that anxiety is contagious, and their kids, our kids pick it up from us. And it's driven by a culture that constantly tells us we need to be getting it right for our kids, we need to be meeting all their needs the right way, and if we mess it up, we might just mess up our kids for life. And I call that the should storm. You should do this, you should do that, you should definitely not do that other thing. Haven't you heard? Didn't you know? You shouldn't, you should. And we're bombarded with this. And sometimes where it's just in our own head, right? So we look at our kid, and instead of interacting with our child, we're interacting with our own anxiety. And we're driven by the should in our head, like that auntie who said, how can you let the baby cry like that? You should comfort them, and so forth. Sometimes people are being pulled by shoulds in different directions, so it's like a war inside our own head. This should storm is driving us to feel disconnected and distracted from our kids 
and it's driving our kids to feel disconnected and distracted too. But just in case you think I'm blaming parents, I'm absolutely not. By talking about the culture of should, parents are starting to notice that this is not all their fault. And when we recognize what's driving us, we can make a change. Like what? Well, I mean, if you're being driven by anxiety and that's leaving you distracted and disconnected with your kids, don't you want to connect with them? Don't you want to parent more skillfully? And also, this anxiety epidemic is stealing all our joy. We're so worried about getting it right. We're so worried about our kids that it's really hard to enjoy them. So it's about getting back to joy, too. I, I, I just think your observation of our culture is head on. Like families that, that we're in community with, my friends, myself, even just, it, you're absolutely right. Like consumed by anxiety, uh, peer pressure of what we should be doing, living up to how I should be raising my child. I completely agree. So as you're saying this, I'm like, okay, I need the pill. And, and I think you're so uh, careful with your words to say, well, because you're like, what, Marnie, you're like, what do you do? Allison, you didn't say, well, you should do this, but you're like, well, don't you want something else? <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously I have an idea on how to help, but like, here's an example, because I think once you start coming out in the public as a quote unquote expert, um, people start to, it's really interesting because sometimes in my practice, parents will look at me and talk to me as though I never mess up with my kids, as though I never yell at my kids or feel ashamed of a way I've behaved toward them. And that's not true at all. I mean, one of the reasons I've been so motivated to figure this out is because I'm a worried mommy myself. Mm -hmm. And here's a great example of this, right? I thought I had gotten so far with this. And then um, we were at a swim team event and I was talking with one of the other moms whose kids are really athletic and like um, they're just like winning state championships and stuff and swimming. And she said something about, and one of her sons is in high school and she's starting to look at colleges and she was just talking about the rat race there and, you know, getting the right resume and the stuff. And she's like, well, you know, if your kids did your sport like fencing, that would help them get into school, right? Like, why don't you have your kids in fencing? And I immediately went into that spiral of like, oh my gosh, my kids need to get into college and they need a sport and they need to blah, blah, blah. And even though they're actually, you know, pretty young and we're late bloomers in my family, so they're not really that coordinated yet. And <laughs> so what did I do? I actually found fencing lessons for them. I kid you not. Um, but um, yesterday my son said he wanted to take a break. So we're taking a break. Um, but in the moment, I felt myself go right into that, like, his life may be ruined if I miss out on the opportunity to introduce him to the sport, the one sport he might be genetically good at, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. I love that you're uh, being vulnerable to share that you're guilty, uh, as we all are. How old are your boys? They're 8 and 10 right now. Mm -hmm. And how would you describe them if you had to sum up um, an adjective for them? Well, I really dislike labeling children because I think that parents can do that and then limit their kids' potential yeah, by okay. doing that. Good, good. Um, that being said, I always think of them as uh, my sun and moon. They both glow in their own way. And I know that sounds super corny, but just from the days that they were babies, one was all sunshine and the other was all moonlight. And how would you define moonlight? Sunshine, I guess I could see. Light, happy, but moonlight. He's 
a little bit, he like spends a lot of time reading. Uh-huh. Okay, so a he's, quieter light. Yeah, and he's very okay. clear in his ideas. Uh-huh. He's a leader by being very clear in what he thinks and then people I used to watch him in preschool and kids would follow him around because he had like the very clear ideas for the games <laughs> whereas the other ones are like hey buddies join in right yeah. yeah interesting so circling back to you and growing up in this rural area did you come more into your own when you were in high school I did yeah okay yeah. so what did you find there that well, I think it was really just the fun experiences with friends, especially outside of school, right? So remember when we used to spend three hours on the phone with our friends after school? Yeah. Sure. Talking and talking and talking. I mean, it was that was great. And then we used to do we used to go rock jumping, which was so much fun. So we'd go out to the state park and there were these rivers and there are huge boulders in the rivers. And so you'd you'd have your hiking boots on and you would just run across the rocks. I mean, it was fantastic. So and very bold. My parents probably would have had a heart attack. I would have had a heart attack watching my kids do it. <laughs> but at the time it was just fantastic. It yeah. was boys and girls and it was like just nice fun. Yeah. Exciting, thrilling a bit. It was thrilling, yes. yes. Especially to have that moment of like, I did that. Yeah. And so then where did you go to college? Where did you end up going? So I ended up back in Princeton for college. And Princeton's like an Ivy League school. That's correct, and yeah. it's very fancy. That's correct, yeah. So were you like, I'm never going to get in? Or were you like, oh, no, I'm going to get to Princeton? Oh, no, I was completely shocked when I got in. Oh, okay. Yeah, in fact, I was actually surprised when I got into my state school and I remember crying tears of relief. And my guidance counselor thought I was insane. But, so you just yeah. kind of had this pressure on yourself or what? You feel like... I think it was that imposter syndrome. I think I just really didn't understand um, that my grades were what they were, that my you know activities were what they were. And the other thing is, again, speaking to the sports thing, um, one of the reasons I went to Princeton was because I was recruited as a Division One athlete. So that What helped. did you play? Fencing. Oh, Wait, how funny! I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, a fencer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. When did you start that? Oh, wow! Sophomore year of high school. No, junior year of high school. Okay. So I had two years of fencing and then got recruited to college. Talk about feeling like a fraud. Like, <laughs> okay, <I forgot. laughs> yeah, but yeah. you are enough. Yeah, and soaking that moment in. And so you had the mesh silver thing over your face. Oh yeah. And then you were all white canvas. Yeah. And a real point, like if it pierced you in real life, you could have been pierced. I think you're thinking of the 1800s. Okay. Um, so uh, I've never seen fencing. Fencing, the, the tip is blunt. Oh, um, okay. And it's uh, set up to an electrical array so that when you depress the point by hitting, by getting a touch, um, a light goes off. Um, so On but the sword. Well, through on a machine that's hooked up. Okay. Yeah. You've but never, it, you need to watch it on the Olympics. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I feel Dude. like I've seen a smidge on the Olympics, yeah. but I don't think I've paid attention to this light. It's not and the zapping. most TV friendly sport because the action is very, very fast. Yeah, and what's it's really, so fast. really happening is super fast. So very hard to follow unless you've actually been a fencer. Can yeah. we get in like a Nerf gun, or not Nerf gun, a Nerf sword fight sometimes <laughs> just to see like how quick you could strike? So you're it's a, a hand It's a problem eye. because uh, when my kids, 
friends try to practice with me, I always end up hurting them. Yes. And I try really not to. Fencing hurts. You get covered with bruises. Oh, I imagine. I always got asked at my checkups if I if someone was hurting me, and I'm like, no, I'm a fencer. Like we would wear like long sleeve dresses to all the college formals and stuff, you know. So did you fence all four years? I did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that community was that your friend group at Princeton? Um, no, my friend group was really a bunch of scrappy nerds like me, yeah. And they were also, and when you went in freshman year, you went into, I was just going to presume, but you went into medicine? So I started out in molecular biology. Sure. And then had a crisis and switched to medieval renaissance intellectual and cultural history. Okay. Right, right. So medieval times history. <laughs> yeah. So do you like a medieval fair? No. Have you been to medieval times, like an absurd amount of times? Yes, I have been to that, but it's totally historically inaccurate. Oh, how dare you. I mean, it was a really fun date when my husband and I were dating, and the kids love medieval times. Uh Yes. Yeah. Um, So then how did you circle back? Um, Another crisis. Basically, I was one of those people that was interested in everything. Um, And I loved uh, studying history, especially cultural history, because it looked at like how ideas move through culture Mm -hmm. and affect people's behavior without them even realizing it. Yes. And then also how new ideas could cause major shifts in culture, because I was studying like the Reformation and the Renaissance period. Um, But the longer I studied this, the more I got restless. Like when I was reading and writing papers about how they tried to solve the problem of poverty in 1500, I was getting restless because I was interested in, well, how could we solve that now? Yeah. And I realized that I was not going to be able to spend my career as a professor like I thought I would because I was not going to be able to spend my career writing about the way people in the past solved problems. I wanted to try to solve problems now. That's exciting. So I went back, I went to med school. Yeah. And so then you went to med school at Princeton? Mm-hmm. No, and Princeton doesn't have a med school. They don't have any practical um, departments at Princeton. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all very philosophical. Indeed. Okay. Indeed. I yeah. didn't know that about Princeton. Yeah, they don't have a business school or anything like that. Oh, yeah. oh I think I like Princeton more than I thought I did. <laughs> it was fun. Yeah, yeah, I like that. So d- was a cadaver gross to you? Um, so if you become a doctor, you have to have two minds. Um, There's doctor brain and there's your other brain, right? So cadaver lab was a very intense experience for me. And our school did it in an unusual way. We did it for an entire year where most schools only do it for a semester. So on the one hand, I was totally fascinated. Mm -hmm. And um, really, there... These these were people who donated their bodies, so mm-hmm. it was um, something that we approached with respect, and our school really treated it as a sacred thing. Um, but at the same time, there's no comparison to being able to, I'm sorry if this grosses everyone out, but to be able to pull on a muscle and see how it moves the attachments, you learn the body in a way that you can't any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet sometimes I would just be hit I would look at this this body and I would say, I wonder who loved him, you know. Really go say. into the person of it. And I would feel that. And, I, and then I would do my best to move out of that, which was actually good practice for being a doctor because there yes. are times where you have to move into that clinical crisis brain. Most of my time I spend in the empathetic, compassionate 
part because I'm general pediatrics, but there are times where you just have to shift. Yeah. Um, especially when a kid's not breathing well or something. Sure. And you just go into action mode and feelings don't really matter right now and then we'll address them a little later, you know? So you have to have those two minds as a doctor. You have to, you have, to have the mind that gets excited and interested about a difficult diagnosis and you have to be able to do that and ignore for a minute the pain you feel about the fact that you're about to tell a family that this child has a terrible diagnosis. Right. And if you don't get excited about it, you can't do a good job as a doctor. And at the same time, I go home and I cry on a regular basis when you I have to give. You do. Of course I do. You do. Of course I you do. carry that. Well, you, crying is a great way to let things go. Right? Yeah. Yeah, a yeah. healthy way to react it to is. it. It is. It's a very healthy way, yeah. Um, what's the weirdest diagnosis you've ever given to somebody? Like most bizarre that you were like, I never thought I would see this out of the textbook. Or I never expected to see this in real life. Bizarre is probably not the, not the right word. Okay. But um, Interesting, the unique. one that I feel that I'm allowed to share, okay. given patient privacy concerns, yeah. um, would be more just... This is actually probably going to sound like a brag, but I was really proud of this one. This was a good doctor day, right? So I had an 18-month-old child come in <clears throat> who was presenting with symptoms, and I got that tug in my gut, the doctor mm -hmm. intuition. And I said, this kid has Kawasaki disease. I know they do. <laughs> now, this is a disease that can basically be very life-threatening, very dangerous if it's not picked up and treated because it causes aneurysms near the heart, um, and they can burst, and you can... You can die. So, but um, this child was presenting with atypical Kawasaki's, which is common in the young kids, where she had a couple of the features. She didn't have all the kid features, but I knew that's what it was. And so when I called down to Lori Children's, uh, Children's Memorial at the time, and mm -hmm. um, started saying, like, I've got a case of Kawasaki's. They need to come in. The fellow started telling me why I was wrong and why it was just a virus. And I just... I rarely do this, but I just was like, you will take this patient today. You have to look at her. I know this. You know what I mean? Like, and I really, really pushed and the, got the whole like, I, you could hear the eye rolling mm -hmm. over the phone. You know what I mean? Yeah. Got the patient down there. Four hours later, I get the call. Oh, so this patient has Kawasaki's and wow. we see it on the, uh, the heart test and blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, I think that was a, that was an that was an atypical presentation. That was kind of a zebra, and um, yeah, and the, the, she got what she needed. You know. Oh awesome. my goodness, bravo! How exciting. Well, see, but now I'm really embarrassed because, like, I don't really want to be praised about that. Oh, like, sorry, <laughs> sorry. I want to talk about. It. I just think that's interesting. It that's was. actually how I wanted her to answer your question, though, because I'm like, uh, yeah, it, we on TV have all of these like. Uh, mystery, you know, and the doctor just randomly says, well, this is what it was. Or, you know, like they, they pull it out. Mm -hmm. So I think it's cool. Like you read it, you you knew to look for it, and somehow it was it was lining up that, that that's what it was. Right. Um, as a pediatrician, can you talk about antibiotics? Because I feel like I just heard something, and maybe, you, well, you'll just correct me, but they said that when a child gets antibiotics, um, that their gut doesn't recover from having re, re re-putting in their healthy bacteria for two years and how important like a healthy gut is to the rest of our brain. Do you like that? Theory? So I wouldn't, um, I, I'm, I'm not going to say whether that's true or not because the microbiome, the gut microbiome is so complex. It's more complex than the entire universe of stars. 
So we're scratching the surface in our mm, knowledge of mm. this. And um, everything we think we know about this um, tends to get blown up and reported before we really, like science is a process, a long, slow process of like figuring things out. And, um, but these get picked up um, and they, they get really clickbaity titles, yes. you know. So um, what I would say about antibiotics is that um, as a parent, I'd encourage you never to pressure your doctor to give you the antibiotics. Yes. Um, because um, we try to be extremely deliberate about it. And I think my patients um, love that. They actually love it that um, I am always going to have that conversation, that I'm very careful, that generally I'm not using antibiotics. So if I tell them I think we need them, then they know we really need them today. Um, but um, there's no free lunch. Every time I use a medicine, I am altering the chemistry of the body. I'm altering the biology of the body. And um, my job as a doctor is to discern when the body actually needs that help from me. Yeah. I so, think that's important for all the parents to hear because I think sometimes people think, let me just get the antibiotic. And then they're like, oh, it worked. Cause, but we're like, well, the virus was two weeks old, so it probably right. was just That is get- actually very often the case, that it's the timing, that it was about to get better anyway. And so um, our job is to really discern that and, and try, yeah. So back to the should store. Right. If I'm going to hear should from somebody, I want it to be a doctor or somebody at least has more knowledge than I do in the field. Like, so I can say you should take a, a antibiotic all that I want, but like a doctor actually might not 100% know, but knows way better than I do. That's my only two cents. Like, I just feel like we have too many people inserting their... Well, having but, a Google degree. Yeah. Right. I'm sure you struggle with that. But that's part of the should storm though. I mean, moms come in, dads too, but especially, I, I feel like all the pressure with the parenting stuff really hits the moms harder. Um, and again, I'm not minimizing how it's affecting dads, but I think most couples report this to me. And um, the moms have the impression that the moment they become a mother, they're also supposed to somehow have a medical degree. Mm-hmm. And they, they actually ex- express a lot of shame um, to me when they come in and I tell them, good news, it's just a cold today. And... Um, and they act like they should have known that. So that's one of the things we do a lot of counseling about in my practice is like, wait a minute, you know, number one, I'm here for when you're not sure, right? And, but number two, where did you get this idea that you should know all of this? And that motherhood provi- like, provides this divine <laughs> knowledge to you, right? Right. But that's all, there's, there's terms for this stuff. There's the motherhood myth. There's the motherhood goddess myth right? And all of this is part of this driving culture that you should know, you should have known. If you don't know, you're going to screw up your kid and you should be worried about that. Are you guys interested in knowing what to do about it? Yes. Sure. Yeah, let's hear more. So it's all well and good to identify all this anxiety and pressure we're feeling, but um, we need to then say, okay, well, what am I going to do about it? How am I going to parent my kids more skillfully? And so what I teach people is when you're feeling anxious, when you're feeling that should, sigh, see, and start. Do you remember what we were taught to do about uh, when we were lit on fire? I love Stop, drop, and roll. Right, right. We were all taught that if we suddenly caught on fire, we should stop, drop, and roll, right? So I tell people to sigh, see, and start. So, okay. So sigh, take a breath is what you're saying. Right. Take a breath. When you feel that should... When you feel that, should take a take a deep breath. 
Sigh is ideal because when we sigh, we take a deep breath in, but most especially we let it out very slowly. Okay. And the slow out breath is uh, sending a message to our autonomic nervous system that we're safe. So when we're anxious, we're actually <clears throat> in the fight or flight response in our, in our nervous system. And our nervous system is old. It doesn't know the difference between being chased by a lion and being worried about my kid eating their vegetables. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we're in fight or flight, you know, we are not really very good at being parents. Um, and so that sigh tells our body, you know what? It's okay. There's no lion right now. And it brings us uh, more into our calm and connected centers. That's called the, ve the ventral vagus nerve. So you sigh. The vagus nerve, that can be triggered like if you have to go to the bathroom too, right? Because my dad passed out in Hawaii when we were at a luau and we were freaking out. And then literally they got to the hospital and he was like, I just need to go to the bathroom. I just need to go to the bathroom. And so now, and they were like, it's the vagus nerve. And I had never heard of it before. And they were like, well, yes, you just really need to go to the bathroom. So now we're always like, just go to the bathroom, dad. It was really scary. Just sorry. Side note. That's what I know about the vagus So nerve. disclaimer, good news. If you take a deep sigh when your three-year-old is screaming at you because they asked for the orange cup and then you gave him the orange cup and then they threw a temper tantrum, um, you are not going to pass out, okay? <laughs> okay, good. 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 So, so when you sigh, you, you engage present. You actually notice your own body. You notice where you are. Then see. See your child. See the situation. See what's going on. See their body language. Are they upset? Are their fists clenched with anger? Do they look like they're on the edge of tears? Um, see is a mindfulness step. See is all about uh, that moment under pressure engaging mindfulness and mindfulness is full awareness of the present with acceptance so you're seeing your child you're seeing the situation but you're not trying to change it yet then and only then start and this is where it gets really fun and messy because you want to start thinking about what's appropriate here you want to start trying something different maybe just start listening but whatever you do just start something or start nothing, or start the wrong thing. If you get it right, that's awesome. You, you file that one away as a win. But if you get it wrong, you're going to immediately trigger another should. I should have done it that way. That's OK. Just sigh, see, and start again. What this does is it pulls you out of anxiety into connection with your kids, into a totally different way of thinking, where now you're not thinking about getting it right. What are you doing? You're trying stuff and seeing what's working. Guess what? You're learning by your own mistakes. So you're modeling for your kids that mistakes are how we learn that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, that's awesome. Can you talk about an example of doing this in your own life? Well, sure. Um, I'm trying to think of a recent one. I guess I'll just use the popular one from my TEDx talk. Okay. Um, so when my son was um, really little, um, he was the world's pickiest eater because he'd had food allergies. I don't know what you're talking about. Right. And, you know, <laughs> my children eat everything. Right. And everybody's got picky kids, but mine was that, that exception where he was in that 1% that would actually lose weight and stop growing mm. if I tried to get him to eat the right foods. So it was a real medical issue. And uh, that, you know, obviously created a lot of anxiety for me. 
Um, and so I read the books and I did what they said and none of it worked. None of what I should do worked. Um, and I even did my best to ignore my son while he was eating. I'll never forget the time mm. when he had his food and I would turn my back and read a book mm. so he wouldn't notice I was paying attention to his eating. <laughs> and I looked over my shoulder to see if he was uh, eating and he looked, he had like the food halfway to his mouth. He looked me right in the eye and then put the food back down on his high chair tray and How stopped eating. How old was eating. he? Like, you know, like 18 months. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, one night he'd eaten nothing mm-hmm. on his tray again. And, um, but he'd thrown a lot of it on the floor. Sure. Right. And my husband and I just said, okay, let's give up. And uh, my husband let him out of the high chair and I took the stuff and walked into the kitchen. And I heard my husband say, don't look now. So, of course, yeah, yeah. I looked, and there was my son crawling around on the floor, eating up all the food that he had just thrown off his tray. And so I felt anxiety for a second, like, oh, the floor's dirty. I should get him off there. And then I felt myself sigh mm-hmm. because I could see that he was eating the food. Yeah, thank goodness. And after that, my husband and I started letting him eat off the floor. Oh, I love it. We intentionally would put the food on the floor, and we would just stand there and watch him eat. And we used to giggle about it because, you know, what if people found out that the pediatrician feeds the baby off the floor? I love it so hard. (laughs) So what do you think about that? The freedom for him to move while he ate? Or what do you think that was for him? I have no idea. But what I do know is that it was effective. Yeah. Right? But at, at the time, I was really worried people would judge me about that. Right. And so just the freedom to release ourselves from that. Yeah. Yeah. To do what our kid needs rather than what people think we should do. You know what's a funny um, thing that keeps popping into my head is last night I was looking at Facebook in my bed and everybody was posting how um, their jack-o'-lantern pictures and we did not do that yesterday. We didn't either. <laughs> and I literally was like, I mean, I had that silly moment where I was like, Marnie, you are not a failure as a mother because you guys didn't carve your pumpkins today. You'll figure it out before Halloween. But it was funny how that social media pressure made me, I should have done this. I felt the same way. I had to work a couple weekends this month, and then there was all this rain. So we haven't been to the pumpkin patch, and I feel like I really let the kids down. Yeah, and how silly. It it is, right? We phoned it in this year. My two older ones didn't want to go. We went to Keller's Farm Stand. We walked in, and we took pictures that said Farm Stand Pumpkin Patch. (laughs) We went back home, and I was like, all right, Ellie, we did it with Nat because she's the baby. Yeah, it's silly how a silly thing like that makes us even feel that pressure or that ideal to measure up to as a mother right right yeah and i think i think that like even one person listening to this who feels a little less anxious because they can pause they can reflect on what's happening they can do sigh see see start start. like honestly like if one person like and then what if a whole community started doing that it could literally help us just to take a chill pill Yeah. You know, and I actually, when I came up with this idea, because I spent 10 years trying to find something that would work, I knew it was a good idea, but I kind of went out on faith, like doing the TEDx talk and starting to put it out there because I didn't run a scientific study on it. I wasn't sure if it was going to work. And what has really amazed amazed me is how many parents have come back and said, I'm going to cry a little bit. 
told me that it was it was life altering for them. Mm, right. The mm. whole tone in their home has changed. Mm, that their kids mm. are more relaxed. That their relationships are better. And um, that really touches my heart. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's good medicine. Who is a mom that you look up to? Who is somebody? Was it on TV? Was it uh, in pop culture? Was it someone in your life or someone that you're like, oh my goodness, their ability to maybe even do Sicy Start just naturally or somebody that you went like, oh, if I could embody that. Is there that person? Well, I think that the thing is it wasn't Sicy Start, right? I really looked up to Claire Huxtable. Amen. You know, she was unflappable, dignified, always had it all together, working mom, right? But somehow the kids had nutritious food. So the reality is she was that ideal that's actually impossible. Yeah. <laughs> um, I look up to, at this, at this stage of the game, the people I admire most are the ones who can be vulnerable and mm-hmm. honest about their humanity. Um, you know, when we get to be flawed parents, flaw doesn't mean like I'm, oh, I'm, a, you know, I screamed at you, but that's okay because I'm a flawed human. Flawed means like I messed up today, kiddos, and I really love you and your relationship with me is so important and I, I want to see if we can repair that together. I want you to feel like you can trust me, you know. Um, People, that's who I really admire, and that's who I hope to be. Is Right. So, like, we're all flawed, not as an excuse, but out of acceptance. Yes, because when I take full responsibility for my mistakes and allow that repair to happen with my kids, then it also gives them the chance to be human themselves um, in all the messiness and beauty that that, that, that entails. And it maybe teaches them how to seek repair when when they mess up, too. Right. Just that correct modeling. Yeah. Yeah. And I focus a lot on messing up, but it also means doing our best to take in our wins, too. Like, what do you mean by that? Well, I think for a lot of moms I know, and I think it's true for me, too, we have a harder time accepting when we're doing well. Mm -hmm. We say to ourselves, oh, it's because I have a great kid. Or they're in a great school, and that's why they're doing so well, and not because I'm loving them and I'm caring for them enough. Um, and I think a lot of moms tell me, in fact, I did an online survey a couple weeks ago for an article I wrote on mom poster syndrome. Um, <laughs> and uh, 78% of the moms who answered said that they were really disappointed in their motherhood because they felt like they had not given their kids enough and they were not doing enough for their kids. Mm. And that's crazy. There's no way that that's an accurate reflection of their reality. Right. Yeah. yeah Especially they're being great moms well, who are taking a survey about being a mom. About being a mom, right? Yeah. They're that concerned about being good moms that they're taking a survey about whether they're good moms or not, right? And, yeah. you know, um, do you realize that moms today and parents today spend twice as much time with their kids as parents did in the 70s? So it's just, there's just no way that that's reflecting reality, that they're not doing enough for their kids. Right, 100%. What is your yeah. take on nature versus nurture? 
that is like the hugest question I've ever been answered asked. Really? Sorry. Um, like, because like in terms of she tra- asked this a lot. Actually, right. I don't know. Well, I guess just because it was an idea that really flipped for me. I remember so? in college, I took a they, I was at NIU. It was called From Womb to the Tomb. It was mm. a great professor. I wish I could give a shout out. Um, but they were talking about learning. You know, as your child is learning gravity and how when you know the developmental stage of your child, how that allows you to have grace and patience and excitement for that instead of like annoyance with dropping food on the ground. Okay. Um, So it was this great class. But I remember then being like, oh, nurture, like 80% nature, 20. And then I had children and I was like, oh, dear God, like nature is like 80% and I'm (laughs) doing 20. But then... When I hear you speaking about the sigh and the seeing and the starting and how that can really flip a tone and and the way that you use vocabulary with your children, then I think, well, gosh, that is a lot of nurture that's going to affect their identity and their esteem and where they feel validated from. So then I'm, so now you're flipping it on me again, I think. Let's put it this way. Number one, sigh, see, and start makes questions like that irrelevant. You can stop worrying about it because it allows you to engage with the child you have, not the child you want, not the child you think they should be, just the child you have. Wow. Number two, nobody knows how much is nature versus nurture. (laughs) Um, Scientists have been, and doctors and child development analysts and psychologists have been arguing about that for like 200 years now. Yeah. Um, We know a lot's genetic, I mean, for sure. And I'll tell you a quick story about that if we have the time. Yeah, go. Go for it, Um, I'm here. When my sons were little, um, my older son is more introverted. I think I've hinted at that. Although he's really come out of himself in the last few years. But he used to spend lots of time, like, in his play gym, just, like, kicking on the post to make the light dance and, you know, stuff like that. And I used to spend a lot of the time couch on the couch reading during my maternity leave or during my days off with him. And I used to really worry about this because I would see on social media like mothers posting about how much they love, love, love playing with their kids, Mm. right? And I'm like, I'm not on the floor playing with my baby and I I must be missing out, right? Or maybe I just don't want to and that means I don't love him enough, right? Um, But I would read my book and he would do his thing and we would interact some. Um, I mean, we certainly have lots of videos of us chatting with each other and so forth. It was my second son who made me realize that that was about nature. Because my second son was people, people, stuff, 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 right? People, 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 people. And so I spent that maternity leave snuggling him and talking with him and interacting with him almost all the time to the point where I needed a little break. And I realized that, in fact, as a mom, I was responding to the child I had. Mm -hmm. My first son needed that time thinking to himself, doing his own thing. And if I had tried to interact with him as much as I had with my second, he would have been overstimulated Mm -hmm. and stressed out. So, yes, they have totally different natures. And yet at the same time, I can try to be deliberate in my messaging to them so that whatever their nature is, they still know that we're a family that hopefully believes in grace toward each other rather than perfection. 
Oh, I love that. I know. That's kind of a great way to end, I feel like, unless you have anything else exciting. I think we people need drop. to know how to to be in contact, how to how to like follow you, because I know you do have an online presence and I think there there would be people interested. Please if we could plug do. You. Oh my goodness, I'm everywhere. Um so I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I have a group for parents called Should Free Parenting on Facebook. Um I'm on Instagram, sort of. I'm. What cute. are you on Twitter? What's your feed? Or your... I'm I'm at the primary carer at uh, Twitter. Oh, okay. Um, because that was my original um, silly blogger name that I uh-huh. thought would be good, and now I kind of regret it. But you can find me there. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, and you can find everything through my website, uh, which is. Um, if you can spell it, alisonescalante.com, or if you just type in shouldstorm.com, it'll take you right to my stuff, and cool. it links to everything. Because what I found helpful about what you were doing on even Facebook is bringing a community together uh, to support one another rather than sharing the shoulds, uh, you know, that back and forth, and, and I think that's helpful uh, to be surrounded by people who are attempting uh, those three S's. Yeah, I've been really happy with that because so many parent groups quickly devolve mm-hmm. into this uh, yeah. shaming situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's actually our membership question. We ask people if you can avoid being a shooter in this group mm-hmm. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, um, yeah. So I, th- I think that's been pretty great. Cool. Yeah. I love that. That's wonderful. Well, thank you yeah, so thank you. much for coming on. All the wisdom, I feel like, uh, is is priceless. So I hope people pause and soak in and sigh and see and start on all the wisdom nuggets that you dropped here today. Thanks so much, Marnie. And thanks for sharing a little bit of your story, too. It's fun to get to know you better. And I didn't even ask where your Wait, where's your husband from? I, we didn't even ask about him. Oh, well, he spent <laughs> childhood in um, Illinois, and then he moved to Texas, um, and he was there through his... Uh, uh, like junior high and high school years. And uh, then we met in college. Yeah. And Matt's what does he guy. do? He uh, is actually in marketing um, for Miller Coors. Yeah. Oh, beer. Mm-hmm. Can, can we say the cool thing that, he, like, so they they come over to our house, their family, and I, you know, pull out a beer for him. And he's like, yeah, I, that, that was the marketing campaign I did. So, oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. So I tell everybody Fun. that now. I'm like, see, he did this kind of stuff. So yeah. how did you guys end up in Illinois? Um, so we planned our lives together because he started out in chemical engineering. And so he got his first job doing research at Merck. And uh, I did medical school. And then he really wanted to do something different. So um, when he was getting his MBA at Duke, I did my pediatric residency there. At Duke? Yeah, yeah, nerd school. And then um, they're so cool. Right? And then um well that was cool because because he was in the grad school, he could get us tickets to be on the floor with the Cam and Crazies for um for basketball. So that that's was cool. fun. Hey, yeah, that's really fun. Um, that's not nerdy. No, it was so cool. <laughs> and then uh and then uh he got his first job up in uh outside of Chicago at Kraft marketing cheese. And so that brought us up here. Yeah. And so then you started a practice. I started working in a practice. Right. I joined a practice up in Glenview. I was up there for six years. And then I've been down here in Naperville practicing for seven years now. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. So that's awesome. Yay. All right. Well, yay, you all. Thanks for being a part of it. And thanks for coming in and doing my podcast. Super loved having you. Thank you so much, Barney. Yeah. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.